They said it couldn't be done. Independence was impossible. Through fear-mongering and other forms of negative rhetoric, they made you give up on your dreams. Well now, it's time. To prove them all wrong. It's time to blow up the system and change the world. And we've got the man who did it. Broadcasting from studios in Atlanta, Georgia, this is Outliers. Here's your host, visionary and founder of Fedora Outlier LLC, Vashon Jones. Now, all right, so welcome back Delivering Access podcast listeners. We are here with another special guest, one that is on a mission as always with the guest that we have to change the world. You guys put your virtual hands together as we welcome Roberta Jensen. Roberta, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? I am better than excellent. Better than excellent. So, um, yeah, let's get right into it. Um, your e- Well, it was an email that you sent to the uh, Minnesota Department of Rehabilitation in regards to something wonderful that you want to put together and um, have to make sure that Braille is aware, is is continued to be um, uplifted and upheld. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up, uh, how you lost your sight, and um, a little bit more about you. Well, I was born in Montana, um, but when I was a month old, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. And when I was two, I fell from our second floor apartment. And shortly after that, I developed rheumatoid arthritis. They didn't think I was hurt in the fall, but soon I couldn't walk. So the arthritis both crippled and blinded me, so I've been on crutches almost all my life. And also being blind, I went to the School for the Blind and Verbal, Minnesota. Mm. So hold on, you fell two stories and the doctors didn't think anything was wrong? No, (laughs) my parents were at work and the babysitter called them and they rushed home and took me to the hospital and x-rayed me and they found nothing wrong but shortly after that um i started complaining about pain and couldn't walk Mm -hmm. and so i always thought it was kind of ironic because mom said i started walking when i was only nine months old but i stopped when i was two so go figure huh yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So you bring a new dimension to the terrible twos. Now, I guess your babysitter wasn't watching you properly, and you decide to play around at the window, or did you just accidentally tip over something? Do you do you remember? Well, I don't remember, but the family always talked about it. So, the you know, the oral history was that we had... um like a balcony or something outside the apartment and to get down to the ground you would go out there and down a flight of stairs to the ground Mm -hmm. and mom had picked up a rocking chair that had no seat in it and she had been going to um, fix it up so they could use it 
and my parents went to work and my older sister went outside and they said I went out on the balcony, pulled the rocking chair over to the railing and climbed up on it to look down below. So we always had a family argument whether I was looking for my sister to see where she went or if I was simply waving goodbye to my parents, but I never did remember it, so I have no idea which version of the story was true. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> but I remember when I was three, I was arguing with my sister, and she was saying it was one story and I was saying the other, but I remember thinking at the time even that I had no idea what had happened. I was just arguing because she was saying one thing, so I was saying the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I get the walking part. Now, were you always visually impaired, or did this happen with the drop as well? Or, Well, um, as far as my parents knew, I had no vision problems. What happened is mom would bring me aspirin for the pain, and instead of just reaching into her hand to pick up the pills, I would have to feel around for them. Mm-hmm. And that's how they first learned that I was having some sight problems, too. But I was 18 before it was finally explained to me by a doctor at the Mayo Clinic that the inflammation from the arthritis had gone into the various compartments of my eyes and burned them out, and that's why I was blind. Mm. So what was life like from age 2 to 18 when you finally get this explanation? I mean, you went to school and, you know, high school and middle school and elementary. What was that whole time period like? Well, um, when I was, you know, like four or something, my older sister started to school, and we lived either in a rural area or a small town, And my parents would send me to school with her a few times to see if I could be educated in the public school. But she was going to, like, you know, those old-fashioned one-room schoolhouses. And the teachers always told them that there was no way they could teach me because I couldn't see the blackboard. So we didn't find out about the school in Faribault till I was eight. So I went to school starting in October of 1955, and because I was older, they simply taught me to read and write Braille, and it took me a couple of months to get through the first grade, and then they put me in the second grade at the beginning of the second semester, and I remember sitting in this desk And we had um, these spelling things that we had to do every week. It was called seat work. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there just going through this book page by page, you know, reading the questions, writing out the answers, and going on to the next page. So I have this picture in my mind of this book, and the pages just keep turning, turning, turning. So I caught up with the second graders, and then I stayed with that class through graduation. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you were on crutches this whole time? Yes. And it was very interesting because 
the school had these big, long stairways. There were like 20, 21, 22 steps on every flight of stairs. And it was real interesting to have to go up and down them several times a day on crutches. Wow. Okay. And so what was kind of like your your childhood? Of course, it wasn't normal. You can't um, see well. You're on crutches. Do you have... Um, horror sp- stories of people that maybe didn't treat you properly or, you know, did you have great friends then? What was that like for you? Well, I had great friends at the school. Um, in most of my childhood, I was either at the school because we spent nine months a year there going home on a few vacations. But a few times during the summer, I would spend a good portion, if not all of it, at Gillette State Hospital in St. Paul. So I didn't know my family very much. I was mostly gone. But I developed some really good friends at the school, and uh, apparently I had some enemies there, too, because (laughs) I always felt like they'd pick on me all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, I never understood what the problem was. I had no idea what I was doing wrong. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. some of the kids thought I had a big swelled head, and they were always, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I but, dare you to have those fancy walking sticks and think you're better than us. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so 18, you find out, you get this news. How does that hit you? What what actually, is that just like, oh, okay, well, now I know at least what happened? Or how did you take the news when the doctor explained it to you? Well, um, a couple of times before that, I had had eye surgery. And I'd had one surgery in the summer of 57. I guess I'd have been 10. And they told me they were preparing my eyes for a corneal transplant. And then I never heard anything about it after that because they had explained it to me that I would be able to see after that. So, of course, I was really looking forward to that. And when I was 13, I was back in Gillette. And they announced one day that that eye doctor was in the house. So I told them, I want to see him. And they said, you don't have an appointment. I said, I don't care. I want to see him. And I threw a big bit. And so they let me go see him. And he said, well, I'm not your doctor anymore. I said, what do you mean you're not my doctor anymore? And he told me that um, the name of the person who was on record as being my doctor and I said, he's not my doctor. He's simply the doctor who goes to the Braille school to confirm that us students there are really blind. But he never saw me. He never did anything for my eyes. So it kind of told me that I probably wasn't going to get a corneal transplant. Mm. And after that, I noticed that my vision started decreasing a little I'd lose a little degree of vision here, and then later I'd notice that a little more was gone. I'd never had a whole lot of vision, Mm -hmm. but I could tell the difference between grass and the sidewalk if cars were parked in the parallel fashion along the side of the road. 
and the sun was shining on them as I walked by. I could see, you know, what color they were. I could see the color of clothes and stuff if they were up close. And little by little, that started changing. So when I went to the Mayo Clinic when I was 18 and he told me it was caused by arthritis and that there was nothing they could do for it and I would eventually be totally blind, I was very upset. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, what can you do? It's something that happened. And <clears throat> But I was 40 before... Um, I lost all vision. I had no light perception or anything anymore. Okay. Yeah, that's the same with me. I was told by the doctors there was nothing they can do, and I would eventually go blind. And this was at age 16, and then at age 31 is when I actually finally go blind. So what was that period like for you? Um, I know for me, it, I was like, you know, come on, get on with it. You know, I would rather, if this is my fate, According to the doctors, I rather experienced it sooner than later. But what was it like for you during the period from the time that you was told 18 till you turned um, age 40? Well, it was hard because it decreased degree by degree. And I did feel, yeah, like you just said, if it had all disappeared at once, there would have been one adjustment. But having to, every few months, every couple of years or so, make a new adjustment because suddenly I couldn't see what I saw yesterday again, it was a constant adjustment. But even worse than that, I had married a guy in the Air Force, and um, I was referred to a doctor <coughs> at Bethesda. And he said, well, yeah, we have this new surgery, surgical procedure that might give you your vision back. And he said, you'd be able to see, for instance, a black box on a black table. And I go, oh, wow, you know. And so he examined me and he said, well, I'd like you to go see, I can't remember where the second doctor was. But I went there, and he examined my eyes, and he said, well, I'd like you to go see this doctor at Johns Hopkins. So I went and saw this third doctor, and this was over, like, nine months, where I was having visions of getting my sight back. I had a three-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. and I had it all planned where she was going to be re wearing this pretty little red dress, and when they took the bandages off and I could open my eyes and see, I was going to have them make sure she was where, you know, she'd be the first thing I saw. Mm. And so nine months of going through this, and I went to the Johns Hopkins, and he said, um, there's nothing I can do. He said, this procedure we've developed, which was a reconstruction of the front part of the eyes, um has a 95% failure rate <laughs> as it is. And he said, we only take the very best, um, what do you call it? You know, the people who are the most likely to be, to successful, be successful at yeah. yeah. And so he told me my eyes were just in too bad of a condition. 
And so that was very, very crushing. So by the time it actually disappeared, I had not been able to see much other than light for several years, so I didn't hardly even notice by that time. Wow. Okay. But I had seen a thing on TV on the news in 69, I think it was, that MIT was working on a device where they would put miniature cameras in artificial eyes and connect it to your optic center with wires. And so I had told myself when I no longer had any vision and wouldn't care if they removed my eyes, I was going to go have that done. And by the time, of course, I lost all my vision, I didn't remember that for a while. But when I finally remembered it and started looking into it, nobody was doing this kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> right. Hmm. So somewhere over the years, they seem to have just stopped researching artificial sight. So I've never been able to find anything that could produce the artificial sight. Right. So you go this period of time with some sight and being able to see and get a semblance of what things look like. 40, you go completely blind. Looking at the world today, and there are some things, for example, like the iPad that, you know, we've never seen in our lifetime. What are some of the things that come across your mind that you've actually have like that's been created since you've lost your sight that you've never seen before? Well, I suppose the best thing that I like is the computer. Um, I haven't tried using iPads or iPhones or anything like that, but I live on my computer. And I was a lawyer for over 20 years, and the computer with the screen readers um, allowed me to be a sole practitioner. Mm -hmm. So I had my office in my home, and you know, I ran my own law practice and was there to help take care of the kids and stuff. And the computer was just a big godsend. I'm now trying to write novels, books, whatever. And I want to write an autobiography of my experience at the Braille School. And without the computer, I just don't know how I would do any of that. Okay. What type of law did you practice specifically? Um, I was mostly a <clears throat> divorce and family lawyer, but I did a, a little bit of other things, probates, you know, how people, their wills. Mm -hmm. um, I got involved with some people who were dog breeders, and the county and the city were after them all the time. So I had a few cases where I was defending them in court. They were being accused of dog fighting or, you know, mm -hmm. stuff like that. <clears throat> so that was kind of a, a weird thing to do. But when you're a solo practitioner, you tend to do kind of whatever comes through the door. 
Yeah, that definitely definitely makes sense. And um, I read a lot of John Grisham novels, and so, of course, he talks a lot about <laughs> the different clients that come through, whether they want real estate or corporate or criminal. So I can, I can definitely see that. Is that your fondest memory of a case that you worked on, or what's your like your best case, something that really, really excited you when you decided to take it? You know, <laughs> I never thought of that. Um, I had a couple of really bad cases. <clears throat> Tell us about that. But the bad case? Uh-huh. Well, I had this guy who came to me, and... um. He and his wife had gotten divorced, I don't know, eight, ten years earlier, and she had given the, him their daughter to raise. And now that eight, ten years had gone by, um, he was selling his house, and he said it was actually his mother's house, mm -hmm. but she had put it in his name for some reason. And she got, I don't know, something like $14,000 out of it or something. Well, his ex-wife wanted all that money for past due child support, <laughs> even though she had let him raise that daughter for eight or ten years. And um, he had no proof that she had voluntarily given the daughter to him and, you know, said he didn't have to pay support anymore. So the court granted her the money, but... This was a thing that took over four years because we put the money in what they call a, shoot, what did they call it? But it was like a stakeholder. Okay. And okay. we ended up in like three or four different varieties of lawsuits. And I remember one time we were in court and the ex-wife's attorney got up and said, Your Honor, she's a liar. <laughs> and I'm going, What? What did I lie about? But they, you know, the one of the judges um, set up a hearing to determine if I had done something wrong ethically. Mm -hmm. And I hired this lawyer that I thought was a real go-getter. And when we were in the courtroom and they put me up on the stand to testify about what I had done, he became this little timid mouse. And I'm going... What the hell? This isn't the guy that I hired. <laughs> so by the time it was over, any time I got any letters from the other attorneys, I just almost had to run to the bathroom to throw up. I mean, it was just sickening. Man, and I look for attorneys. I say I look for an attorney that even I don't like and a pit bull and all of that. So I can imagine you thinking you got a, a, a courtroom warrior and he turns into a, a, a mouse on, on a cross-examination and, and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then later I found out that um, see, they had what they called benches. Mm -hmm. So people on one bench would handle all the divorce and family law cases. Judges on another bench would handle all the criminal cases. They had a different bench for, like, probate and things like that. Mm -hmm. So because this was about child support, it was, you know, with the family law judges. Mm -hmm. So 
So I found out after the hearing and everything that my lawyer had been in front of this same judge for child support arrearages, that he didn't pay his child support. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of intimidated by this judge for failure to pay his own child support. And if I'd known that before, obviously, I'd have never hired him. Wow. And I could imagine that because he's looking at the judge and the judge is looking like, she paid you any fees, you better turn right back around. And, uh, you know, I never even thought of that. Yeah, whatever she paid you, buddy, I get it for child support right. here. Man, I could imagine that. That is <laughs> scary. All right. Well, what's exciting you right now is you want to write books and then you want to document this thing in your life. So tell us how we came to even know about you and what you were wanting to do and who you want to reach out to and we'll make it happen best way as possible. Well, I had actually sent um, an announcement to David Andrews that I thought was going to the National Federation of the Blind list in Minnesota. And I thought he would put the announcement on the NFB list. So I was surprised to see that it was on the um, state services for the blind list and only went to them because that's not where I had intended it to go. But I have a lot of memories from the school, obviously. Mm -hmm. The thing that I don't have is any record giving me any kind of dates and things like that. Um, So I was looking for documentation. We had a newspaper called the Riverside Press, and I've contacted the school, and they said they don't have any of that stuff. The main building was torn down in 1984, and it's my understanding that much of the documentation and stuff from before that was, just simply destroyed. So we had a very good wrestling team for a number of years, and I was hoping to find somebody that maybe could give me some idea of things like when was the wrestling season? I don't even remember when it started and ended. Mm -hmm. I think we were in a 10-school group, you know, who wrestled each other. Um, and so I was hoping maybe somebody had wrestling records that would give me some kind of a framework to build my story around. We had groups like the FFA, the FHA, um, and articles about them and what they were doing was put every month in the Riverside Press. Um, we had a school band and a choir that was very good. We went to state contest every year, and I think for three years running, the choir got what they call an A, and I think the band got it like for four years. And so there's just a lot of activities like that that went on at the school that apparently there's no documentation left because trophies that we received and things like that, you'd think they'd have them 
in some kind of a trophy case at the school or something, but mm -hmm. when I contacted the school to see what they have, I was told they don't have anything. Mm. So I know it's been a long, long time, but I was hoping maybe I would find some people out there who had somehow managed to save memorabilia from the school all these years. Amazing, amazing. Huh, I wish I was on this mission. I would find as many people as a, attended the school, any teachers that was around, any newspaper articles, um, anyone as a part of the NFB, and just interview them, capture their stories, document the history. And, um, you know, it's like one of the documentary, not documentaries that I watched, um, there wasn't anything as well, and this person was able to tell the story and become that rich history that was, you know, destroyed as well. So um, that's what I would do. Well, one of the things <clears throat> that I'm trying to do now, um, hold on just a second. Sure. <clears throat> I don't know how to mute my phone. <laughs> it's fine. We can edit it in post. Okay. Um, a few years ago, back in 02, well, I had lived in Arizona for a number of years. And I came home in the summer of 02 for three weeks, and I spent a couple of it with my best friend in Minneapolis. And while I was there, I did interview her <clears throat> and... Um, a few of the other kids that we had gone to school with. Mm -hmm. And I have these big, long six-hour interviews on cassette tape. <clears throat> so one of the things that I'm hoping to figure out is if there's a way I could play those tapes into some kind of a program that would transcribe them for me. Mm-hmm. I just hate the thought of sitting there and having to type up all those six hours of interviews on, I don't know, I think I have eight or ten different people. And I put up doing it all these years because I simply wouldn't, didn't want to do all that typing. But I'm hoping to discover now if there's some program that I could play that through where it would transcribe it for me. And I think that those interviews will give me some framework that I can use to help fill in some of my gaps because everybody remembered something different about the school. Okay. Excellent. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Um, there's technology out there. Now, I'm a technologist. I love um, my computers and Apple products and all that great stuff. But there's definitely some technology out there that will do what's called digitize um, those tapes and make it a normal audio file on your computer. Um, and then from Well, I there, don't want it to be an... I don't want it to be... Oh, well, okay. Yeah, yeah and, and because I can point, transfer it Mm -hmm. I know how to transfer it from the cassette tape into an audio file on my computer. Okay. But what I don't know how to do is get it transcribed without my having to do all the typing. Oh, okay. Well, there is a little app. Um, you can actually do it on your iOS device or your phone. 
Um, don't quote me. I will get back with you on it. I think it's Rev, R-E-V, Recorder. And um, you just take that audio file, send it, you know, to them or upload it, and they spit you out a transcribed um, document in, you know, five minutes. And, you know, you can go through and edit it, of course, because it's not going to be a 100% perfect, but it's thousand uh, percent better than having to type it out yourself. And um, I think they do, I think it costs like a, a dollar a minute, maybe. Well, I think that might be awfully expensive because six hours is, what, 360 minutes, and I have eight or ten mm. tapes, so I think yeah. that would be very expensive. Yep. So the other thing is just send it to a transcription company online that could, number one, do it for cheaper, but they would have it perfect um, for you. And that way there's no editing. But as we both know, where there is a will, there is a way. And so we will definitely work to make that happen if we can come up with a reasonable price. Um, Fedora would be happy to uh, chip in and make that happen for you because we definitely want to, um, number one, make sure that the archivals are there and the sentiments of the students, and we want to help you. So let me know, and um, we'll make it happen one way or the other. Well, that would be very interesting. Absolutely. I thought, and I, I get the email because we're a vendor in in uh, Minnesota, we're actually based out of Georgia, but we operate in about 20 states teaching blind people assistive technology. And so when the email came across to me, I'm like, man, this is a great opportunity to be able to um, assist someone. And I think it's so noble of you being able to and have a desire to archive um, the memories of the school. So I hope you get lots of responses and, um, you're able to see and realize your dream of making this happen for sure. Well, that would be really nice if that happened. All right. So we'll stick a pin in it right here. We'll check back with you and see how things are going, possibly do another interview. But for now, if anyone wants to reach out, whether just to um, chat or um, to help you with your mission, how would they reach you? Well, I can be reached by email at Roberta Joan Jensen. That's R O B E R T A J O A N J E N S E N at gmail dot com. Or is it okay if I give my phone number? Sure. Okay, my phone number is area code two one eight two seven zero three one seven seven. Excellent, excellent. Well, I certainly appreciate it, Roberta, for your um, sharing of your life and time of Roberta Jensen. I thank you for being on the podcast. And again, we wish you lots of success. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. You have been listening to Outliers, an official production of the Delivering Access Network. If you have a comment, question, or an idea for a program, email Vashon at excellence at fedoraoutlier.com. And visit fedoraoutlier.com if you'd like to purchase any of the products you hear advertised on the program. And for more great podcasts from the Delivering Access team, visit deliveringaccess.net. 
Check back again next time for more Outliers. Until then, thanks again for listening, and let's change the world together.